Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 521st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to a museum, a big museum. We are. As a matter of fact, a museum that has a ton of buildings connected to it, the Smithsonian. Oh, awesome. You've never been to Washington, D.C., have you? I have not. I've been a couple of times. I've only been to the Smithsonian once, and I think I was like, 12 years old, something like that. But I do remember seeing some of the stuff that was in there and just how big these buildings were and the collections they had. It's very, very cool. It was probably really small and you just thought it was big because you were little. Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But of course, we have a lot of legends that are connected to artifacts that are here and also stories and conspiracy theories about the museum and what's going on there as well. We're going to get into a lot of that on this episode, including some of the hauntings that may be going on. Before we do that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Christine, who spells her name with a C-H, Carrie with a K, and Merle. Thank you for joining the Spooktacular crew. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in Oddity was suggested by Michael Rogers. With Valentine's Day just around the corner, we wanted to share with our listeners an unusual artifact found in Cork City, Ireland. The relic was a lead heart-shaped casket containing an embalmed human heart. It was discovered within the medieval crypt of Christ Church during the 19th century, although the discovery was not completely unique. There had also been an embalmed heart found at Christ Church Cathedral in Dublin. This particular relic contained the heart of Archbishop Lawrence O'Toole, who is also a saint. He had died in 1180 AD. The owner of the heart found in Cork City is not currently known, but based upon similar findings, it is believed to have belonged to somebody noteworthy. The heart is said to now be on display at the Pitt Rivers Museum at the University of Oxford. Regardless of whom the heart belongs to, discovering an embalmed human heart within a lead case certainly is odd. afraid of the dark. That's just silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. <laughs> and now, this month in history. 
In the month of January on the 15th in 1974, television sitcom Happy Days premiered. Created by Gary Marshall and running for 11 seasons, the hit show achieved number one in the Nielsen ratings in its third season. The show takes place during the 1950s and 60s in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It centers around a post-World War II middle-class American family with a teen son and daughter who enjoy hanging out at the local malt shop with their friends. Many of us can recall the first two seasons' opening theme song featuring Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his Comets. Beginning the third season of Happy Days, viewers began hearing a re-recorded theme song sung by Pratt and McLean, with a memorable lyric starting with, Sunday, Monday, Happy Days! Although son Richie Cunningham, played by Ron Howard, was the protagonist of the show, the most memorable character was Arthur Fonzarelli, a.k.a. The Fonz, played by Henry Winkler. The greaser's motorcycle riding persona made him popular with the ladies, always emanating that cool style. This portrayed Fonzie as a bad boy who somewhat clashed with the wholesome all-American cast of characters. Despite Happy Days not being appreciated by television critics, the sitcom became a pop culture icon that is still enjoyed in syndication today. The Smithsonian Institute is the world's largest museum and is located in Washington, D.C. There are dozens of museums that are a part of the Smithsonian, and together they showcase the history and culture of America and the world. And this is also the world's foremost research center. Priceless art, collections featuring memorabilia, fossils, animals, ancient Chinese bronzes, stamps, flags, posters, and even Kermit the Frog called the Smithsonian home. The Institute is also cloaked in mystery and legends, and it is quite possible that several spirits call this place home. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian Institution was named for the man who started it all, James Smithson. Smithson was born as the illegitimate son of the first Duke of Northumberland, Hugh Percy Smithson. It's believed he was born in 1765 in Paris, but none of this information was officially recorded anywhere. He became a naturalized British citizen and attended Pembroke College in Oxford. He wasn't originally named Smithson. He took that name after both of his parents passed away. While in school, he gravitated to the natural sciences and he focused on minerals and chemistry, which was a fairly new science at the time. Now, I know for most people, they're pretty thankful for chemistry. It gives us a ton of stuff. But I remember taking chemistry in college, and I'm not thankful for that. (laughs) (laughs) I was much more of a fan of life sciences, so biology and zoology. Yes, that was totally my thing, but I had to take chemistry. And uh, yeah, I just, I've never been very good at it. I, I never blew up anything. (laughs) But I also never understood anything, so. Smithson traveled extensively throughout Europe collecting samples of ore and minerals. I'd call him a rock hound. That's definitely what he was, an elite rock hound. Yeah. He was widely respected by his peers and was accepted into the Royal Society of London in 1787. This made James one of their youngest members as it came shortly after he graduated from college. Smithson died during a trip to Genoa, Italy in 1829, and he was buried at the San Beningo Cemetery. The gravesite was marked with an elaborate sarcophagus. James had left his estate to his nephew with the stipulation that if his nephew died without an heir, the estate would go to the United States. 
This was a surprising request to many because Smithson had never even been to the United States. Wow, that's pretty cool. Can you imagine? I'm going to leave my fortune to this country that I've never even been there. Don't know what's going on, but I want to further the education and stuff there. I love that. Before we talk about how this gift led to the creation of the Smithsonian Institute, we want to finish out the rest of Smithson's history. In 1904, the cemetery was going to be destroyed when the quarry next to it expanded. The Smithsonian Board of Regents decided to retrieve Smithson's remains and bring them over to the United States, even though Smithson had never been to America. It would be Gilbert Grosvenor and Alexander Graham Bell who would move the body from Italy to Washington, D.C. He was buried in a crypt in the Smithsonian Institution building known as the Castle. He was disinterred in 1973 for a couple of reasons. One was to see if he was buried with any important documents, which he was not, and the other was to study the coffin and skeleton. The examination was conducted by anthropologist Larry Angel, and a copy of his findings were put back in the coffin with the skeleton before it was sealed up again. And perhaps this is why Smithson is at unrest. But more on that later. An attorney from Philadelphia named Richard Rush traveled to London to collect Smithson's personal effects and the money. Smithson had specified that the money would go, quote, to the United States of America to found at Washington under the name of the Smithsonian Institution, an establishment for the increase and diffusion of knowledge. So he's the one who actually named it to. It wasn't just that they were giving him some kind of an honor. He was honoring himself. After Rush returned to the United States in 1838, Congress began debating how exactly to use the money. And what I read, Richard Rush was this lawyer. He had to go over and fight in the courts. So I think London was not quick to relinquish the funds and everything. So that's why he had to go over and go to court to get everything. It would take until 1846 before legislation would be passed that created the Smithsonian Institution, and this was officially named the Smithsonian Act of Organization. This gave provisions that a suitable building should be used with enough rooms and area to host an art gallery, a library, and rooms for the reception and arrangement of natural history objects. President James K. Polk signed it into law. The first person put in charge of everything was Professor Joseph Henry of the future Princeton University. His specialty was electromagnetism, and he was a natural philosopher. He served as the secretary of Smithsonian Institution for 32 years. The first building to be part of the Smithsonian was completed in 1855 and was dubbed the Castle. Joseph Henry lived on the upper floor of the East Wing with his family, and a statue of him is in front of the castle. The building is gorgeous, with several towers, constructed from Seneca Red Sandstone brought in from Montgomery County, Maryland. Architect James Renwick Jr. built it in the Norman Revival style that combined Gothic Revival with Romanesque. The interior was mainly handled by contractor Gilbert Cameron. The center of the building had museum space that is now the Great Hall. Above this is a lecture room, and there were two galleries on the second floor that have been changed to a visitor center and reception area. There is a large basement below the Great Hall. The East Wing not only had the living space for the secretary, but had research and storage space. These are now administrative offices. The West Wing, that is nicknamed the Chapel, was a library that is now just a quiet room for visitors. Fireproofing was done to the building, but this didn't stop an 1865 fire from destroying nearly all of James Smithson's correspondence and documents. Library contents, artwork, and several rooms were gutted. How terrible. And here's what's horrible about that. There was a guy that I think was doing some renovations or repair work or something inside. It was going to take a while. It was during the winter. It was very cold. 
they brought in a stove and they put the flu up through this hole that they thought was going to lead outside, I guess. Oh, my gosh. But it just built all the cinders and embers and everything up in the wall. And so over the week, while he was burning the fire to keep himself warm, this catastrophe was broiling. So that's why it caught fire like it did. Renovations were done and extra floors were added to each wing. Electric lighting was added in 1895. The next renovation would come between 1968 and 1970, and a five-year renovation was started in February of 2023. So if you guys are headed out to Washington, D.C., you will not be able to go into the castle, so I would save that for a later date. And of course, James Smithson's tomb is inside the castle. So they put him in there to begin with, and he is still there today. And a lot of people think that he's buried in the sarcophagus that's above where the plaque and everything for him is, but it's actually on this granite pedestal, and he's in the granite pedestal. Oh, my. Not the sarcophagus. The Great Hall first held exhibitions of natural history specimens. This space was soon outgrown, and before long, three additional Smithsonian museums had been built. One of the first spaces to ever be designated for children in a museum would be at the castle. This had a large aquarium with fish in the center of the room and cases with exhibits of the largest and smallest birds of prey, the smallest and largest eggs of the world, the largest lump of gold ever found, and the largest diamond ever cut were around the room at the eye level of children. Nowadays, it's standard to have these children's museums, but it was not a thing back then. So the Smithsonian is the one that started all that. Very cool. The exterior of the castle was surrounded with beautiful gardens that expanded through the years. Spencer Fullerton Baird became the second secretary in 1878, and he served for nine years. He also was the museum's first curator. Samuel Langley became the third secretary, and he served for 19 years. All three of the secretaries served until their deaths. There are 21 museums and the National Zoo that are part of the Smithsonian Institute, with the two most recent being added in 2020. So this is still ever-growing, ever-expanding. Clearly. These museums are the African American History and Culture Museum, African Art Museum, Air and Space Museum, which I've been in, Air and Space Museum, Udvar Hazy Center, American Art Museum, American History Museum, American Indian Museum, American Indian Museum, New York, Archives of American Art, Freer Gallery of Art, Hirshhorn, Natural History Museum, Portrait Gallery, Postal Museum, Renwick Gallery, Sackler Gallery, the National Museum of the American Latino, and the Smithsonian American Women's History Museum. Here's just a sample of the artifacts that have been on display. I remember when I went, and you had no idea, Kelly, when you did the history and researching it about Happy Days premiering on TV, but one of the things that I remembered seeing as a kid was Fonzie's leather jacket. I mean, the synchronicity that we have for this Because the minute you said... Here's the history that I'm doing. And I went, are you kidding me? I said, I'm actually going to mention in the show that one of the things that I remember (laughs) back as a kid, which was a long time ago, I do remember seeing Fonzie's leather jacket in there. And it was this museum was called something else. I don't know what they're calling it now. It's probably part of the American History Museum, maybe. Too funny. And of course, I also remember seeing Dorothy's ruby slippers from The Wizard of Oz. There's also Archie Bunker's chair. I would remember that well also. (laughs) Abraham Lincoln's top hat. Nice. The 1903 Wright Flyer. The Greensboro lunch counter. Yes, the entire lunch counter is there. Oh my goodness. The desk the Declaration of Independence was written upon. Thomas Edison's New Year's Eve lamp. Hank Aaron's jersey. Ulysses S. Grant's chair from Appomattox. Cesar Chavez's union jacket. 
and dresses from the First Ladies of America. I remember that display as well, too. It was just tons and tons of dresses on these mannequins. And Eddie Van Halen's Frankenstein electric guitar that he played on tour in 2007. Wow, so cool. And for those of you that are into rock music and that kind of thing, you probably already know this, but the Frankenstein electric guitar was something that he put together himself over the years, starting in the 70s, because he could not find a guitar that played the way he needed it to play. Right. So he built this thing and they ended up calling it Frankenstein because it had all these different parts to it and it was crazy. You mean it wasn't green with bolts coming out the sides? No, but it should have been. Oh, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was uh, red and white and black. What happened is they ended up retiring it because he'd been playing it for like 30 years. And so a guy who built guitars, I think for Fender, made an exact duplicate. He took that guitar and everything on it he matched and rebuilt it, basically. And then Eddie Van Halen took it out on tour in 2007, and then it got donated to the Smithsonian after that. Very cool. So Cool story for those of you that are into rock music like we are. The National Zoo's most famous resident was Smokey the Bear, who arrived as an orphan cub in 1950. So some people may not know that Smokey the Bear actually was a real thing. And my mom actually got to see him before he passed away. Aww. Because I I failed to mention on the last episode when we talked about the Pentagon getting established, my mom actually worked in the Pentagon. And that's where she and my dad met was in Virginia because he was in the military. Yes, indeed. Before we talk about the unexplained things going on at the Smithsonian, we wanted to share some of the urban legends that are connected to the museum. Listeners have heard us joke several times on episodes about the Smithsonian hiding things in the basement, specifically around the discovery of skeletons of giants. There are conspiracy theorists who believe that every time these skeletons were found, the Smithsonian would send archaeologists out and the skeletons would never be seen again. This would be me. (laughs) (laughs) I totally believe this. I know there's nothing to back it up, but I'm just wondering where all of these skeletons went to. There was a fictional account written on a website many years ago that reported that the Smithsonian had admitted to destroying thousands of giant skeletons in the early 1900s. This was debunked in 2014. The Smithsonian did some debunking as well back in 1934. The curator of anthropology for the Institute, Alice Herdlichka, said that the reports of giant skeletons were just based on people's will to believe and misinterpreting bones that belonged to animals. There was just this verbal debunking. No actual proof. Yes. So everything I read that said, oh, this was all debunked and everything, I'm like, because the guy who heads up the because area that so. would be hiding it said so? It's like a parent. You're doing love... it now because I said so. And I love how he says, well, people believe in giant skeletons just because they really want to believe that there were giants. I'm like, you know, even if you're not a Christian and want to have something to back up the story of David and Goliath, there are so many myths out there and all these different cultures about giants. Come on. For example, there was a massive skeleton found in Tennessee. It was toured around the state as a reconstructed skeleton mounted to a timber frame. A doctor in New Orleans looked at it and claimed that the bones were of a mastodon. Okay, so I think most people know what a mastodon was. It was supposedly a giant elephant. So somehow a giant elephant-like creature was mistaken as a very tall human-like creature. Okay. (laughs) Kind of like swamp gas for UFOs. We could share dozens of newspaper articles detailing giant skeleton discoveries and, as I said, legends from Native Americans who believed giants had roamed the earth. And we could even share a speech that Abraham Lincoln gave that mentioned a lost race of giants. But in the end, it's really whatever you want to believe. That's what we do with this show. We always leave it to you guys to believe so you can believe whatever you want. 
For us, we have no doubt that a giant race of something human-like was on the earth at some point. Too many cultures have the stories. It's like the giant flood stories that are in so many cultures. Clearly, some kind of flood happened for all these unconnected groups to tell the same basic story. So whether you want to believe it was Noah's Ark or something else, they all talk about the same thing, which to me means it happened. Yeah, exactly. It got passed down through all these verbal histories, so something had to have happened. And it's not just them passing down the stories. I mean, their artwork that they left behind on walls and stuff. If you see a figure that they've carved into a wall that has got a what looks like a cow underneath its arm or a buffalo, that's a big person. <laughs> exactly. Did the Smithsonian gather them up and hide them? We'll never know. But it makes for a great legend anyways. One of the legendary objects at the Smithsonian is the Hope Diamond. The history of the diamond is murky. French gem merchant Jean-Baptiste Tavernier claimed to have obtained it in 1666 in India. Isn't that an unusual year? I totally thought that when I typed it. I'm like, 666 at the end. And then it's believed that he sold it to King Louis XIV in 1668. But there is no clear mention of the specific diamond, but a sketch shows a blue diamond. The court jeweler later cut the diamond, and then it's listed as the blue diamond of the crown of France. Most people called it French blue. It was believed to have been stolen during the French Revolution and disappeared from history. But tradition holds that the Hope Diamond was cut from the French blue, and some scientific testing seems to back that up. The Hope Diamond's official history starts in 1812 when it was in the possession of a London diamond merchant. It then went to the royal family and was probably sold for debts and was acquired by the man for whom it is named, Henry Philip Hope. The diamond passed on to his nephew, Henry Thomas Hope, and then on to a grandson named Lord Francis Hope, who sold it to a London jewel merchant in 1901, who sold it immediately to a man named Simon Frankel. Frankel started having financial issues, and he started referring to the diamond as the Hoodoo Diamond. There were some more owners, and then it ends up with Pierre Cartier in 1910. Although the diamond had been referred to as hoodoo before, it was Cartier that started the legend of the Hope Diamond being cursed. He fabricated a story to entice a Washington, D.C. socialite named Evelyn Walsh McLean to buy the gem. Now, I don't know how making up some kind of a story about this gem is so cursed would intrigue somebody to want to buy it. I'd be like, I don't want that thing anywhere near me if it's cursed. But McLean was intrigued and she bought the diamond in 1911. And then the story about the curse seemed to be true. Her husband left her for another woman and later died in a sanitarium. The McLean's son was struck and killed by a car, and their daughter died of a drug overdose. Jeweler Harry Winston acquired the diamond after Evelyn McLean died, and he donated it to the Smithsonian in 1958. And here again, the curse about the diamond seems to gain some credence. The diamond was delivered via the post office by registered mail. The postman who carried it was named James Todd, and he had several misfortunes befall him. Within the year, he had broken his leg, had his dog die, his wife die, and his house burned down. Good grief. (laughs) And all he was doing was just delivering it. No bad luck seems to have fallen upon the Smithsonian and millions of people have visited it. Does it have a curse? Well, that, again, is for you to decide. I've seen it. I did see it when I was at the Smithsonian. I don't think I've been cursed, so I don't think they laid the curse upon the entire American population (laughs) by putting it in the museum there. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Here's one of the stranger urban legends connected to the Smithsonian. 
gangster John Dillinger met his end in Chicago in 1934. He had been one of the greatest bank robbers in history, but now he was just laid out in a Chicago morgue, naked under a sheet. And rumor has it that this picture revealed that Dillinger was rather, um, how should we put this? Well endowed. (laughs) (laughs) Newspapers decided not to run the pictures as it might cause scandal. So, Kelly, I went and found the picture. And upon first looking at it, you would think, my gosh, yeah, this guy should have been a centerfold for a certain magazine out there. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But when you look at it really closely, because, I mean, I know some things can happen when you die or whatever. I think rigor mortis had set in, but it was on maybe a part of his body, like his arms, and that maybe it's like uh, an elbow sticking up or something. I got more of a feeling it is a little bit higher than, you know, where I would think anatomically it would be located. So (laughs) I'm thinking it's just that his arm is kind of sticking up a little bit because of rigor mortis. But that is for you to decide. I'm thinking I might go ahead and grab that picture and put it up on Instagram and have it like set at the back end so it's not the first thing that people see. And you guys can decide, yes. So the real story here is that somehow Dillinger's appendage was removed from his body and became a part of the Smithsonian collection. (laughs) The Smithsonian claims that this is just a myth, but the rumors have been so intense that the Smithsonian created a form letter to respond to inquiries, which reads, quote, In response to your recent query, we can assure you that anatomical specimens of John Dillinger are not, and never have been, in the collections of the Smithsonian Institute. You gotta wonder, how many people are writing in to be like, hey, do you got John Dillinger's uh, weapon? And they're not talking about a gun? And so they've made a form letter? How many do you have to send out? That's so funny. Another urban legend claims that the Smithsonian discovered Egyptian ruins in the Grand Canyon. This was actually sparked from a real newspaper article. The Arizona Gazette is the only paper in the country to run this story. The headline on April 5th, 1909 read, Explorations in Grand Canyon, Mysteries of Immense Rich Cavern Being Brought to Light. Jordan is enthused. Remarkable find indicates ancient people migrated from Orient. The article featured a man named G.E. Kincaid, claiming that he had been traveling down the Green and Colorado Rivers where he found a site with relics that seemed to indicate an ancient civilization had been there, and many of the artifacts appeared to be Egyptian in origin. The Smithsonian sent out an archaeologist named S.A. Jordan, and he investigated the site and took many of the relics back to the Smithsonian with him, you know, to put down there in the basement. (laughs) No records can be found to prove that either of these men really existed, and the Smithsonian claims the story is untrue, and they have no such artifacts. But you gotta wonder, this paper has a story about it. Where did that come from? Yeah, it seems like there's got to be some sort of bit of truth in there somewhere. Yeah, so the only other thing I can think of is it was some kind of a fraud that these men had pulled and were saying that they'd found these artifacts. Yeah, perhaps. So maybe that's why it didn't really get reprinted anywhere else. Another archaeological mission that seems to be a myth is that the Smithsonian sent a team to Mount Ararat to find Noah's Ark. There is a picture that seems to show a strange formation on Mount Ararat that some claim is the Ark, but the Ark has never been found and the Smithsonian has never tried to find it. And another rumor is that storage area under the Smithsonian that we joke about. This legend actually claims that there is an archive center underneath the National Mall. This storage space reputedly has a labyrinth of tunnels stretching out under the ground beneath many of the museums. 
Gore Vidal, wrote the novel The Smithsonian Institute, and he writes about the castle basement and a group of nuclear physicists doing experiments there. The movie Night at the Museum, Battle of the Smithsonian, put forward the idea that this was a real thing, too. The Smithsonian storage facilities are actually mostly located in Suitland, Maryland. However, there is an underground complex of tunnels that connect several buildings that are only accessible to staff. While the Smithsonian is very secretive about what they have hidden in their basement, so to say, they aren't shy about their spirits. The Smithsonian Institution Archive shares stories about strange phenomenon in their museums. Back in 1900, the U.S. National Museum, that is now known as the Arts and Industries Museum, had a spirit bird that liked to wail. This wailing was so loud that the people who lived around the building could hear it, and before long, the Washington Post, yes, the Washington Post, was running an article about the strange disembodied sound. Wow. A 2015 article in the Smithsonian Archives by Hillary Brady describes what happened. Quote, It was recounted as a soul-depressing sound, a monotonous wail, a dolorous note in the night. Residents took up arms against the apparition in a tragic appeal to put an end to the noise. For a watchman, a gun, for a boy, a slingshot. The phantom noise lingered on. The only explanation? This bird with the weird cry terrorizing the town was the disturbed spirit of another winged creature who had given up its life for the sake of science and now fills the cases of the Smithsonian. A lot of people were hearing it enough that they were like, we got to get a gun and go shoot the thing. Maybe it was just a loon. It was some, somehow in the area <laughs> crying yeah, I, out. <laughs> yeah, I don't. They have kind of a disturbing call. I don't know that they'd be in Washington, D.C., though. I was being sarcastic. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say the only time I've heard loons is when I went to Canada, so. And, Diane, the listeners might recall that during our recent interview with Sylvia Schultz, she remarked that security guards were a wealth of haunting stories when it came to museums. That is also true of the Smithsonian. Watchmen would routinely compare notes with each other about masks that moved on their own in cases, bronze animal sculptures that seemed to come alive, and they too heard the screeching of a bird. Now, we will admit that some of the ghost stories had some non-ethereal explanations. One guard mistook a diving suit for a body. A mannequin that was dressed as a Japanese warrior had been moved out of its case to be photographed, and a guard thought it had taken itself out of the case. And guards often mistook a museum guide named Jesse Beach, who was living at the Museum of Natural History, as a ghost when they saw her wandering the halls wearing a white nightgown with her long, flowing white hair. It was after all of those sightings that the regents came to the decision that no one could stay overnight in the museums. But there are ghosts seen by staff and visitors. The namesake of the museum, James Smithson, is one of the apparitions staff have claimed to see. He actually is the one that has been the most sighted of all of them. He's been seen so often that a curator had the casket examined in 1973. We mentioned earlier that the official explanation was just a cursory exam, you know, of the skeleton. But now we know the real reason behind the disinterment. <laughs> Because I was like looking at Kelly and going, you know, why would you disinter a skeleton that you know is of this person? It's been in there the whole time. What would be the point to look at Smithson's skeleton? Well, of course, they said to see if he had any artifacts with him. And, you know, they did this study and then they put a copy of the study back into the coffin and buried it with them. And I told Kelly, I wonder if they did some kind of a, I don't know, cleansing ritual type thing, because, you know, they've got cultural experts there to put the spirit to rest, and that's what they put in the casket with him? I don't know. The skeleton was completely intact. We're not really sure what the curator was looking for. The skeleton wasn't walking around. 
clearly Smithson was dead. So there has to be some other reason why they went in and opened up that coffin, I think. And I don't think it worked because that happened, what, in the 70s? Yeah, and they're still seeing him. So whatever they (laughs) did is not working. And the former secretaries who 10 years came to an end upon their death seem reluctant to leave the Smithsonian in the afterlife. First Secretary Joseph Henry has been spotted wearing the same clothes that he wore when he was alive. He walks through the exhibits and then steps into the statue of himself outside. There's a statue of him outside of the castle. Right. He comes in and out of that all the time, apparently. Second Secretary Spencer Baird has been seen by almost every night watchman who has worked in the castle. The ghost disappears when it is approached. A paleontologist for the museum named Fielding B. Meek lived under a staircase in the castle with this cat. What? He lived under the staircase. That just sounds so strange. <laughs> well, I heard he's a stra- he was a strange guy, too. All Everybody right. said he was very quirky, and yeah, it was just this itty-bitty little room under the staircase. Okay. The 1865 fire forced him to change residences to one of the towers where he died in 1876. And staff claimed to see him walking around the castle. Emil Bessels was an Arctic explorer, and he had been seen in the castle. That Washington Post article from 1900 also detailed the stories of some employees who believed they had seen former scientists in the castle. It says of one longtime employee that he, quote, has been startled at the solemn hour of midnight by coming face to face with the former secretaries long since dead. The form of Dr. Bessels has often been seen traversing the long corridors and gliding about among the dingy-looking old curios. Both former Secretary Baird and Professor Henry continue to supervise the affairs of both buildings. And though long since dead, there is scarcely a man who does duty there by night who cannot tell of meeting them more than once. When spoken to, their forms vanish. One of the haunted items at the Smithsonian is a purple dress that Mary Todd Lincoln had worn. She had no use for the dress after the president died as she wore black mourning clothes for the rest of her life. She gave the dress to her cousin, and that cousin's son sold the dress in 1916 to the Smithsonian for their First Lady's collection. The dress is said to be haunted by Mary. People hear weeping near the dress, and her apparition has been seen near the dress, too. A number of ancient Egyptian treasures are said to be cursed, of course. A scarab from King Tut's tomb is said to carry a curse. And as we all know, I don't know there really was a curse connected to King Tut's tomb, but there's also a mummified cat head, and workers claim to have seen a ghost cat near the display. A woman named Molly Horrocks worked as a collections manager at the National Museum of American History. She told the following story in October 2022 on Season 8, Episode 9 of the Smithsonian's podcast, Side Door. So if you want to know more stuff about the Smithsonian, they do have their own podcast. It was probably 8.30 or so because we like to do things when people aren't around. So I'm leaving my office. I've got my keys. I've got my supplies. I'm meeting our mount maker at the case, which is right at the end of this stairwell. And I could tell that there was something there. But there was nobody here because it was silent. So I'm at the point in the stairwell where I could either go up or down and I hear a sound above. Just kind of a thud. But it was enough of a sound. I knew it wasn't just a weird building sound. It got my attention. But again, I was going somewhere. I didn't really think anything of it. It was like, oh, that's weird, whatever. So I'd go down the stairs, and at halfway down the stairs, I'm like, that was a little weird because there was no sound after. I was thinking, well, if there was somebody up there, wouldn't they have said hello? But there was nothing. There was just silence. So I get to the bottom of the stairs, I'm at the door, and I hear again this thud sound. And this time I looked up. And when I looked up, there was a man peering at me from around the banister of the stairs that I had just come from, right where I'd been. There was now a person there. 
I had never seen this person before. They were wearing an Ike jacket, a World War II era jacket, olive drab, greenish kind of color. He was pretty young, in his mid-twenties maybe. We made eye contact. That's silly. Just because he wasn't real. He wasn't an alive person. It was just an awareness. This was not a living person. This is just something else. But we made eye contact. I didn't feel scared. It was just, it just was. And he seemed like he was just kind of curious. It was very strange, actually, how natural it all felt. And then I just left. I just opened the door and I left. And the door that I was going to go opens up to the World War II section. And I told the mount maker who was there already waiting for me, I was like, I think I just saw a ghost. And she's like, I don't doubt it. A lot of the staff have some kind of weird experiences. So (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And I love that she was able to make eye contact with him. Yeah. So obviously there was an intelligence there. He's seeing her. She's seeing him. And then (laughs) I just just love it. See ya. We had a moment. (laughs) See ya. And then she just calmly goes in and tells the other person, I think I just saw a ghost. And that person's like, yeah, whatever. People do it all the time. The third floor staff bathroom in the National Museum of Natural History is apparently haunted. Shocker, it's a bathroom. And yes, it's the women's restroom. Of course. (laughs) It's always the ladies' restroom. Deb Holwalski is a collections manager at the museum, and she told the Side Door podcast that when she first started working in the building back in the 1990s, she heard all kinds of ghostly experiences about the bathroom. People claimed that the manual faucet knobs would turn themselves on. Deb scoffed at the stories until one day she was in using the restroom when she heard the water turn on. There had been no one else in the restroom when she entered, and she hadn't heard anyone come in. Deb finishes up and leaves her stall and turns off the water. She thinks that it just must have been pressure building up. But then the sink next to this one suddenly turns on. She turns off that faucet, and then the next sink turns on. Deb turned that off, and the sinks stopped turning on. A little while later, Deb brought her 15-year-old daughter to work. She had told her daughter the bathroom story, and the teenager thought it was baloney. That was until both of them were sitting in Deb's office that dated to 1910, and the sink in that room turned itself on. Deb had to physically turn the knob to shut off the water, and they looked at each other like, what? This was the first time this sink did that, and it never happened again. So they're just trying to make a point. Apparently, we're We're here. We're really here. Hello. Yeah, because I have heard plumbers try to explain away sinks that turn themselves on, that sometimes there is pressure that builds up and there's certain types of models of sinks that the faucets will just turn themselves on. But right. not when you have all three of them, boom, 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 as you're turning them off. There's totally a prankster there having fun with you. That would be me. Kim Dixon worked at the National Zoo in 2001. One of her duties was to observe the elephants during the middle of the night. And get a load of this, Kelly. I would love this. A new baby had just been born, and Kim was watching them one night when she had a strange experience. She got to just hang out with the baby elephant at night. I mean, baby elephant and spirits? Wow. (laughs) It's like bingo. One more thing for a trifecta. (laughs) (laughs) She told the Side Door podcast, It was about 2.30 in the morning. I'd been on my shift maybe an hour, and I was taking my notes, sitting in the dark with my red light on. And I heard the far door by the hippo enclosure open. And then I heard the echoing footsteps of hard soles across the tile floor. Very slow, deliberate steps. Just a simple click, 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 click. And since it was a big open space with that concrete floor, it just echoed everywhere. It didn't disturb me at that point in time because I still thought it was maintenance. It was security. It was a keeper. It was someone that I knew. 
not a big deal. So I was in the middle of taking some notes and I looked over in front of Ambika's enclosure, who was the enclosure to the left of where I was sitting. And there was a tall, what I felt was male figure. And he leaned into the lower bar and put his hip out and looked at the elephant. And then he turned and he looked at me. I don't remember any facial features and I didn't think anything of it. I smiled. I nodded. My timer went off. So I looked down and I started to take my notes and then I looked up to say something to them and they were gone. I didn't even breathe at that moment because I was listening for any footsteps around me since it was pitch black other than my little red light. And I didn't hear any footsteps and I didn't hear any door. Kim checked the facility and all the doors were still locked and she was the only human in it. She called security and they checked the building too. They found nothing. She wondered, could it have been that you were falling asleep? Could it have been the lighting in the room? Nope, that didn't work. I checked that. I checked that. I checked that. And to this day, I can still kind of see how they were. Gray figure, very solid looking. And I knew they turned and they looked at me. They noticed me. We made some type of contact in that moment. But the second I looked down, they vanished. A lot of people think it was a former keeper there. I would think so. Just coming to check on the animals again. And I love that she has a story where the timer went off and she looked down because we have so many stories where like somebody looks away and then they look back and the thing has disappeared and we never know like why did you look away this at least had a reason to look away for a moment a curator of the castle collection named richard stam said of the reputed hauntings many ghost stories have swirled about but in the many years i've been in this building no ghosts have ever shown their faces to me is it because there really aren't any spirits at the smithsonian or is it haunted That is for you to decide. On one of these days, when we make it out to Washington, D.C., and we're looking at all the different historical buildings they have out there, we'll have to stop by one of the Smithsonian's. I always love the one that has all the cultural stuff in it. Definitely. It's like taking a walk back through our childhood and stuff like that. We'd love to have you guys take a walk through our website. Oh, my. At historygoesbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Suzanne Silk for upping her donation. We're finally going to be moving her into a mausoleum. Oh, man. Thank you, Suzanne. Definitely appreciate that. And I hope you enjoy your new, well, I can't say digs because it's above ground, but (laughs) your new final resting place. We could build a basement on the mausoleum and then we could hide artifacts in it. Okay. Perhaps I already have secret bunkers. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review. My S's are just sloppy. Can't help it. It's because you (laughs) like like snakes.
No, it's just I can't say S's through the front of my teeth. It comes out the side. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> okay. That's why I went to speech therapy when I was little. Well, <laughs> didn't didn't work. Didn't take. <laughs> well, I don't notice it. I don't think the listeners do either. We haven't gotten any bad reviews about, oh, my God, those S's. <laughs> Smithson. <laughs> now I'm there having go problems your with S's. S's, too. Spissin. Spissin. Spiffy. Spissin. <laughs> Smithson. That's what his name should have been. Forget James, it should have been Spiffy. Before we talk about the unexplained things going on at the Smithsonian, Smithsonian, <laughs> trying to put some extra letters in there so the S's are easier to say. <laughs> sure, why not? When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. 